The economy is a thing. The national election is a thing. But the stuff politicians talk about on the way to election day, well, those aren't always things. We've assembled a panel of experts. Listen up, people. This show is all about separating hype from fundamental change. I'm Paul Jarley, Dean of the College of Business here at UCF. I've got lots of questions. To get answers, I'm talking to people with interesting insights into the future of business. Have you ever wondered, is this really a thing? On to our show. This podcast comes from an event where we were celebrating Glenn Hubbard and his gift to endow a professorship in economics. Listen in. I didn't want to resist the huge opportunity I had today to uh, get together a, a panel to talk a little bit about um, the relationship between the economy and the political election that's coming up. And so we're going to talk a little bit about whether a number of things are sort of a thing or not in as non-political a way as we can here. And um, I have th- uh, three panelists with me today to, to help me understand some things. So most of you know Glenn Hubbard. You, what you may not know is Glenn Hubbard is a graduate of our economics department at UCF. He started here. He is currently the chairman of the board of MetLife and is the former dean of the Columbia Business School. He is still a professor there. And I, I like to joke with Glenn, after you're a dean, the comment that you always make is you get to go back to be part of the problem rather than the part of solution. And he's enjoying that a great deal. Totally. <laughs> right now. Next to Glenn is um, John Solo. John is new to the college this year. He um, spent many years at Iowa. In fact, John and I were assistant professors together many, many years ago. And he sits in the white Xander endowed professorship in economics that Glenn and Glenn's wife, Constance, has funded. And it's not named after them. It's named after the two faculty members who were most influential to Glenn while he was here, becoming an economist. So that's really awesome, and we're really glad to have John with us today. My last guest is uh, Sami Aponda. Sami is an associate professor in the uh, Department of Economics and spent uh, four years years there. Yeah, four years at the Central Bank of Canada. And so I thought he would also bring kind of a really interesting perspective to what we're going to talk about today. And at the end, we'll give you a little time to ask questions. I hope I ask some things that are on your mind, but if not, we'll give you a little bit of an opportunity to do that. I've been um, watching the news, like all of you, in some of the debates and the things that are being brought up. And and so I'm going to do a little bit of a lightning round with the panel, where I'm going to bring up a particular issue that the politicians have been talking about. And I'm not so interested here in in getting a political take on the issue. That's, That's not what I'm about. Instead, what I'd like the panel to talk about a little bit is how important is this issue to the economy in the short term and the long term? Let's start out with rising income inequality, particularly at the top. Is, is it a concern from an economy standpoint? Is it not a concern? What do you think? To me, the concern in inequality is the bottom, not the top. So I'm extremely worried about the earnings prospects of millions of Americans who don't seem to be participating in an economy dominated increasingly by technological change and globalization, I'm less worried about how many billionaires there are. The only reason that one would be worried about how many billionaires there are is if you think they're somehow monopolizing the political process. You tell me there was one billionaire on the stage the other night at the Democratic Party debate. I don't think he's the most influential. (laughs) So I'm more worried about the poor than Mm -hmm. I am the rich. Mm -hmm. John? John? I think it's a long-term problem. I, I agree with Glenn that it, I'm more concerned about 
So what we talk, what economists call absolute poverty is the ability of the poor people to, to have a standard of living that, that they can uh, they can support a family and they can enjoy, um, rather than the disparity. If everyone were richer, uh, so the poor people could afford uh, you know, the, nece- the necessities of life, that would be a good thing, even if there were rich people, people who were richer than that. I do. Th- I am concerned about the the ability of uh, the very wealthy and the very organized to influence policy. Um, the money, the in, the impact of money on the political process. I think that is causing problems and. Uh, I mean, I think we've just seen a lot of it, and you can argue on both sides of the political spectrum. But there seems to be a, there seems to be an awful lot of what we just think of as corruption. People using uh, wealthy people using the political system to increase their incomes, uh, not to do what's best for the, the country as a whole. Yes, there's only one one billionaire that we're aware of running during the debates, and there's obviously a billionaire already running on the other side. Um, but that's not where I think the problem is. It's not so much that they hold the offices, but that they pull the strings behind the scenes. Samin? I do agree that, in principle, there shouldn't be a worry that we have more billionaires or anything like that. But as long as the pie is growing at, a, at an enough pace and that, uh, that pie is being evenly or uh, at all levels, uh, that growth is being shared. But currently, that's not the situation. Right? So at the very top, at least in the last 30, 35 years, there has been an increase in the income share of the top 1% from about 10% to 20% of total income. Now, most of this reflects capital income, right? especially entrepreneurial income, dividend income. But And for the top 0.1%, actually, I think the... The income share of the 0.1% has increased from about 4% to 9%. So this type of economic gains are not being shared, especially in the middle income categories. And that, in, in the long run, this is going to be worrisome because it will have political implications. It's already started to have political implications. And sure. that's, that is a worry. I think these themes are all really important. I think your question is probably the, one of the biggest long-run questions for our our country, I don't think we live in a world where the system is depriving people of gains from productivity, whoever those people are. I think we have a lot of Americans who do not have a marginal product that would lead to the wages that John is describing. If we want to fix that, and I think it's critical that we do, we have to use social insurance programs more aggressively than we're doing today, and we have to decide in our nation's priorities, is that what we want to do? We're running a government that's principally about old age entitlements and things like that. Should we be investing more in working Americans? I think we should. I think it's a huge question. Who pays for that is a separate question. It could be the rich. It could be somebody else. But prioritizing those programs, I think, is critical. Because here's what I worry about. I graduate 2,000 students a year from the College of Business. And I'm trying to prepare them for a future where data says to me they're going to have maybe two or three careers. And we've seen, and I think we'll continue to see, a lot of technological disruption of a lot of those careers and perhaps a lot of structural unemployment. Biggest risk, you think? I, I think it's a very big risk. 
And I think that there are two familiar ways to deal with it, and our country has done both in the past. One would be a a sort of battering ram approach on opportunity. And I I think there about um, Lincoln era Mm -hmm. policy. So people associate the president with the Civil War, obviously. But remember the Transcontinental Railroad, the Homestead Act, the land-grant colleges. Lincoln had an almost maniacal focus on opportunity. The other pillar in American softening of capitalism has been more Rooseveltian. It's social insurance programs that keep everybody in the boat. We know how to do this, and we need to. The structural unemployment is real, but our labor market policies were designed in an era where you lost your job for a temporary period of time, and you came back to the same job, like a a layoff or a strike. That is not the world we live in. Because when they um, perfect those autonomous trucks driving... How many truckers? Well, yeah, are when the lose president jobs, said he right? was worried about Mexican truck drivers, I, I said I was worried about no truck drivers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. that's right. really the issue. Yeah. John? Um, so, the, the question of automation and technology has been with us for a long time. Uh, about 55 years ago, President Johnson had a commission on automation and the, and the economy. I still have a copy of that report. My father was one of the members of the commission. But it was, it was headed by uh, Howard Bowen, who was the president of Indiana University at one point. Um, and pe- the people on it included uh, Edwin Land of Polaroid and Thomas Watson of IBM. So these were serious people. It's been around, this issue's been around for a long time, and, and yet we still have, you know, very, very low unemployment rates. I'm more concerned about, and I think, I think Glenn probably is too, about the wages. I think what we're talking about is the wages of the people whose jobs are replaced um, by, by technology. Technology is complementary to people like us, right? This is a tool that we get to use that makes us much more productive but there are people who, for whom it is a, a substitute, and those are people who are losing their jobs. And again, I think it's we always talk about how education is the way to solve this problem. We have, you know, people exactly as Glenn said, there are people who don't have much productivity, and we need to figure out ways to solve that. Right? It's not just well, I need money so I can survive, but what skills can, you, can we develop in you, that, that you where you can do something to help us? I'm not trying to blame the poor, but I do think that part of the game is finding, finding ways to make less skilled people more productive. So I, I'm, I just came from the Midwest where... Uh, you know, rural America is struggling very badly. The world has just changed dramatically. These little towns that used to support an agricultural community, and you know, everyone knew everyone, and kids could ride their bikes after school in the streets, and uh, you know, idyllic 50s. Um, that is just going away. The world is changing, and we have to figure out some way either for those people to, or not so much the people who live there now, but their kids and their grandkids to, to do something different. They can't, they can't look back to the way and say, I want it to be the way it was in 1955. It's not, that's just not going to happen. So me? And the unemployment rate is at an all-time low, 3.5%. So jobs are being created. But where are they being created? So they are being created at the very high end. So high-income jobs are uh, on the rise. So there's a lot of job growth there. 
And there's also a lot of job growth in the bottom end, right? But a lot of middle-income jobs uh, are being hollowed out, essentially, mostly by technological change, to some degree by trade and offshoring. So this is an ongoing problem. This problem is probably not going to go away. If anything, it's probably going to become more severe. So machine learning and artificial intelligence is with us. I, I'm not sure if self-driving trucks are around the corner. Uh, I think we've been a little bit too optimistic about that, probably. The marketing's ahead of the reality there? I, <laughs> I think that's probably the case. We probably will need to wait another two, three decades, perhaps, for that to happen. And it's not clear whether it's going to happen as we envisage that it would happen. Mm -hmm. uh, but nevertheless, um, you see this type of automation even in high-skill jobs now. Yeah. So a lot of finance jobs are being automated, and even healthcare jobs, so basically machines diagnosing or making diagnoses or reading x-rays on, on their own and doing a better job from humans at, at that. So I think this is with us, and uh, we'll, I agree with the panel that we'll need to find remedies at some point in terms of um, redistribution of some sort of the gains from all this type of Technological is there a country in the world currently that we can use as an example there? Americans like to think that they're exceptional and different and need different solutions, but is, but is anybody doing that right? Or ahead of that game? Well, Germany has for years had apprenticeship yeah. programs and, and training programs. For, to many Americans, they'll look unusual because they're tracking children from quite a young age into jobs, something maybe we would or wouldn't want to do socially. But I think the U.S. could learn a lot from its own past, too. We used to have very strong vocational education in the country. We have outstanding institutions and community colleges that are doing a lot of the training that's needed by local businesses but are woefully underfunded. So there are just lots of things we could be learning from. Mm -hmm. So long as it's a matter of choice, I don't have a problem with that. So I remember being a schoolboy in England at the age of 10, for one year, and they have this exam called the 11 plus. And if you do well on it, you get to go to the high school that leads you to college. And if you don't, you get on the high school that, that leads you to baking. And, and I was petrified as a 10 year old that you know, if I screw up this exam, that's my life, right? And of course, I was an American. I didn't even have to take it. My mother explained to me that, oh, it's not for you. But my classmates, you know, this, this sense that you know, at some age we're going to track you, and part of what makes America a great place is this notion that you you can be whatever you can, any, whatever you want to be, if you're capable of doing it. You've got to do it. You can't just say, "I want." I'd love to be the starting shortstop for the, uh, for the Boston Red Sox, but I can't hit as well <laughs> as Sandra Bogarts, um, and or, or even a bad shortstop. <laughs> um, but right, so. But I think we, we like. I, I, I think it is important that people have opportunities. But what I do worry about what Sammy was saying, which is that you know the, the middle is hollowing out. David Otter at uh, MIT has done a bunch of work on this, and where the jobs seem to be being lost are in the middle, not the low end. We have lots of low end, low paying jobs, and we have good high paying jobs. But the middle is is uh, is hollowing out. And I think that that's very tough. It used to be that you could move up the ladder, and now the leap goes from, you know, burger flipper to coder or Wall Street 
junior Wall Street executive, and that's a huge leap. Samin? The worry is that as these trends are happening to the middle class, there is a lot more pressure to uh, perhaps limit immigration because the That's immigrants... That's my next point. The, the immigrants... You're going right here. Keep talking about uh, it. <laughs> yeah, immigration is next. Or, or it's about trade. So we should essentially... Um, close down our borders to trade or not allow offshoring, right? So that's sort of the worry. So if you want to get, I mean, there aren't calls yet to sort of uh, destroy the robots, but maybe that might be the next thing if actually robots take over. That didn't uh, work out for the Luddites too well. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, obviously all these things are a posit- net, net positive for the economy. We don't actually want to get rid of either automation or immigration or trade but if we uh, if we still want to keep them and make this politically feasible then we would need to find a solution as to how we keep the middle class or the former middle class happy right we have to perhaps insure them in some way or it could be in kind for example in terms of healthcare uh, or educating Promising to educate their kids at least for the for the better jobs in the future. That's not something we do necessarily a very good job, especially in poorer neighborhoods. I mean, rich neighborhoods have pretty good schools, but not necessarily poorer neighborhoods. So all of the oh, so we have to find ultimately a solution to that. So what about immigration? How how big of an impact is it on the economy? In your in your estimation. Is this something we should be worrying about from a macroeconomic standpoint, whether we limit it or let it be open? I mean, from a, go ahead, yeah, we'll come back this way. I, mean, I, th- I think the literature is pretty, uh, pretty clear on this, that immigration has been a net positive, both high-skill immigration, especially high-skill immigration, uh, but also low-skill immigration, too. I mean, it has pushed... Uh, production possibilities and also productivity. Now, a lot of the low-end jobs actually have been filled by foreign, foreign-born workers in the U.S., and ultimately that has um, increased the welfare of native-born people. Uh, but there has been some wage impact. So there, there is some literature that, that looks at the wage of high school dropouts in particular, and there has been some negative wage impact in that particular uh, part of the labor market. But Again, this is to say immigration of both kinds have been a net positive for the economy. John? I, I, this is not literature that I follow, so I'm going to defer to the person who knows something about the literature. But everything that I've heard, read or heard says pretty much the same thing. I mean, remember, we're now down to even the, uh, legal immigration, a limit of 18,000 people in a country of 300 million, right? Uh, this seems like this is as close to zero as, as you could get. And I just, I find, I find, I don't think that this is an economic problem. I think it's a social problem that points to a darker side of our society. Well, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, there are two immigration stories, and they've already been well told. One is about high-skilled and one low-skilled. High-skilled, half of the students I have at Columbia in the business school are not Americans. 
And I would love it if they all wanted to work in my country and could, not because I'm a nice guy, but because I'm fundamentally selfish. And they'll add to our productivity. You know, frankly, we should want all foreign-born grad students, maybe maybe not lawyers, but, but everybody oh, else. Apologies <laughs> if there's... But, but we, we should want these. So low-end, there's... There is an issue. There will be legitimate disagreement. The studies are actually mixed about the effects on uh, the wages of native-born Americans. But if we care about this, we have to treat it as a social issue. I think that's absolutely right. Our country isn't going to have as bright a future if we restrict immigration. We know that, and everything points that way. But we can't just blithely say that as economists. We have to address the concerns of people who feel left behind. They're being told by some forces to point the finger at immigrants and the other, but instead we need to help them. And if we don't do that, the immigration discussion will get worse and worse and worse. I would commend to everybody a book um, one of my teachers at another institution wrote, uh, Ben Friedman, called The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth. And Societies that are growing and well distribute their gains are more placid societies where you see racism, bigotry, anti-Semitism, that usually comes about in struggling, slow-growth societies. Mm -hmm. We don't want to be that. Lack of hope is a bad thing. It is. Really bad thing. You touched on this a little bit, Glenn, but the next one on the list, of course, is trade wars. Talk about that a little bit and the impact it's having. Well, it's, it's interesting because I actually would start off by giving the president a little bit of credit. China has been a bad actor in the global trading system for a long time as one of the people who tried to push President Bush toward WTO accession for China. I always thought, and I think other people thought, that China would ineluctably reform because it would see it in its own interest. That is wrong. China is still massively subsidizing credit and has SOEs. There's a real question about whether China should be in the WTO as it's currently structured. Having said that, Everything we're doing in the trade wars, from an economic perspective, bizarrely wrong. You know, why wouldn't you unite your friends against a common enemy rather than picking fights with everybody at the same time? If there's any hope for WTO action on China, it would have to be multilateral. So, right diagnosis, but the treatment seems odd. John? Uh, I think Adam Smith is rolling in his grave. <laughs> At a very fast clip, um, and I, so I absolutely agree. Yeah. So China, China has misbehaved in a lot of ways. Um, I, I do think that the focus. I, I don't. Uh, we were not going to get too political. I hope, but I, I don't think our president understands the, uh, trade. I think he he's focused on two things. He's focused on bilateral trade balances. So what we sell to China and what China sells to us. And we'll just leave the rest of it aside and focus on that, that, those numbers. And that's a pretty meaningless number in a very interconnected, multi-country economy, right? If we sell, if we buy things from China and China spends that, uh, this is a, a loose example, but if we buy things from China and they spend that money on things from Brazil and then Brazil spends that money on things from us, we gain, right? That we everyone is specialized in what they do best. But our bilateral trade relationship with China looks like we send them millions of dollars, and they're stealing our wealth. And this is just a meaningless thing. The other thing is that trade is not done, the determinants of, of trade are not the result of deals between presidents. 
They're the result of economic forces. We import a lot because we don't save very much, and we are a good place to invest. And so people, rather than buying things, they invest in in American companies and uh, in American assets and, and stocks and bonds and things like that. So I don't think he understands it very well. That's not to excuse China uh, for being bad about intellectual property, for being bad about selling substandard products and cheating on dog food that poisons dogs and flooring that poisons people and things like that. But I don't think that... um, that getting into trade wars all over the world with all of with our allies as well as the Chinese makes the world a better place. You know, if you ask, if you, if you, and people have done this, if you poll economists, the one thing there are all these jokes about economists not agreeing with each other, right? This is one. one, one of the Roosevelt said something. I think it was a Roosevelt who said, uh, you know, I want a one-armed economist, so he wouldn't say on the one hand and on the other hand. Um, it's an old, old joke. Um, the one thing we all agree on is that trade is a good thing. That free trade, ninety-nine percent, and I think the one percent that doesn't is somebody named Navarro. So. <laughs> This is, we're not going at this very well. This is again in the Midwest. This is in Iowa, where I used to live. This is hurting the agricultural economy badly. And yes, so we give them money to prop them up, but that's not really the solution. We're, we cause the problem, and then we throw taxpayer revenue at them to to help mitigate the problem. It's not a good thing to be doing. To me, you want to beat that dead horse just a little more? Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> I completely agree with everything that has been said. How about um, rising health care and pharmaceutical costs? Concerned about that as a headwind on the economy? Definitely. And it, it's related to some of the other discussion we had, too. You know, it's, if you look at pay and compensation, which are two different things, pay is your wages, compensation is your total package, a lot of what is happening, particularly in middle and lower uh, wage workers, is higher health care costs are taking a lot of that. So a lot of the labor market discussion we had is actually linked. It's actually part of a health care discussion. We also know that we're paying way too much. I mean, if we look at outcomes in the United States versus outcomes in our peers and then compare that with the spending as a share of GDP, we're, we're paying too much. The causes are many. There's no silver bullet. They have to do with the huge importance of third-party pay. When economists use the words like insurance, we mean something specific. We mean catastrophes. What's called insurance in the United States is tax-subsidized prepaid health care. It's not surprising that that would lead to overconsumption. Public programs that have poor incentives. There's a lot that we could that we could do there. And you are starting to see action on uh, drug costs, too, where we've seen patents pushed too far. We've seen other areas and I think the, both the right and the left, from different mechanisms and different perspectives, are trying to come at that. So this is an issue I expect to be a big one. John? Uh, I, mean, I think that I mean, all the polls suggest that health care is the single um, most important thing on voters' minds. Um, of the five things that were on our list, what voters what's, what's impacting people in their daily lives is, is health care. They're not thinking about automation and, and, I mean, they may at some level, but what really matters to people is health is care. 
That's, and I agree with everything that Glenn said about yeah, that. I, I completely agree, too. I mean, this healthcare is a, is a very, very important part of the welfare of, of people, and obviously high costs are a, of a major concern, and that should be a politician's priority, I guess, to try to fix that in, in some way. I would, I would add, though, I think, um, I think we should rethink the fact that we have a system of uh, employers... Uh, so we expect essentially employers to give health care. I mean, they, we don't expect them to give, uh, I don't know, uh, pay for our rents or pay for our cars or anything like that. But we do expect them to, uh, to pay for our health care. I think we probably have to move away from that system. That system uh, probably has been uh, a net negative in terms of labor market mobility too. I mean, you have to think about what's going to happen to your healthcare if you decide to change jobs or geographic locations, uh, and then maybe start from from that point. Whether you go on the one hand to single pair or whether you go to a much much more private private base, but perhaps uh, with some insurance about catastrophic healthcare expenses, for example is going to be a political concern. But I think we have to probably move away from this employer-based healthcare. It's interesting on that point. You know, The system we have was an artifact of wartime wage and price controls. And so what the dead hand of a policy that most Americans don't even understand what it was, it was so long ago, has really shaped the healthcare system in, in odd ways. It's striking that the political discussion now is just completely unrelated to what we're talking about. So one side would say Medicare for all. A $30 trillion spending expansion over 10 years. The other side says, that's socialist, we want nothing. Where are all the ideas, the actual economic ideas, are somewhere in between all of that. There's no reason we couldn't have universal catastrophic health insurance. There's no reason we couldn't help low-income people through the funds that we currently put in Medicaid. So there's solutions here. They're just not being talked about. So with respect to the last question. So with respect to the economy, what aren't politicians talking about that they should be talking about? Well, to me, the biggest is an undercurrent in several of your questions, that the anxiety, the economic anxiety that many Americans feel that their futures uh, are imperiled, particularly for low- and middle-skilled people. No politician is talking about this. We're hearing a discussion on one side about universal basic income or throwing money at it. On the other side, we're hearing nothing. This is, this is unsettling. Is this problem not going away, and it's going to get bigger. That would be my John? suggestion. Yes, I, I, I agree with that. I, I might put it a little bit differently, but I think you mentioned earlier on you know, sort of American exceptionalism, and I think this is a problem. Right? That we, I think we, are a, we think that we deserve to be the wealthiest people on earth because we are the wealthiest people. We, we're America, darn it, and we, we just deserve it. And you earn it, right? There's, it's not written in stone anywhere that we're going to be the most successful country on earth. Other countries have, want to succeed as well, and they put effort into it. I'm going to plug something that, um, that uh, you know, it sounds self-serving. Of course it is. But, you know, China has said at different times they want to, you know, they want to build 20 MITs by the year 2050. Our state governments are cutting education budgets. That doesn't sound like a very smart policy, right? We, well, we just deserve it. Um, you got to work for it. We, we don't, we don't, we aren't entitled to it. We have to earn it. Um, 
So that's something that worries me. You know, a hundred years ago, I sometimes put this up for students, a hundred years ago, the country that was the world's superpower, whose currency was the, um, the world standard that was the most innovative and creative on the planet, and there goes on, the list goes on and on. In 1900, that was England. A hundred years later, 120 years later, you wouldn't put England in that category. It's a nice place to live, don't get me wrong, but it's not the world leader. Things change, and we can't just expect to coast on our laurels and say, well, but we're the greatest country that the world has ever seen. You've got to earn that every day. For me? Perhaps income mobility um, across generations could be a top, more uh, bigger topic of conversation. I think one of the biggest worries that middle-income people now have is not only that they are falling behind, but they're seeing also their children falling behind. So I think uh, we have to preserve and sustain equal opportunity, at least. Uh, we don't necessarily uh, we don't want equality of outcomes. Uh, we're all capitalists, I think, here. Uh, but we do, uh, do want to preserve uh, human capital formation uh, at the highest possible level and also make sure that every strata of the uh, community actually have resources to get a good education, especially at the pre-K to 12 level. I mean, there's a lot of emphasis at the college level, but it might, I mean, for some of these kids, it's actually too late by the time they get there. There's a lot of effort. I'm not trying to um, undermine the effort, but we are ranked, I believe, like 25th out of 35 OECD countries, I think, in terms of math scores, science scores, reading, uh, and that's a shame in the, in the richest country in the world, so we have to do something about that. Take a walk through any college of engineering and, and see where the bulk of the students are from. That's all you really have to do there. So I, I know Tiffany wants to give time to mingle, but I, I promise I'm going to take two questions from the audience. <laughs> Carrie? The mic failed to pick up a question from Carrie but it was about the deficit and monetary policy. Thank you, no one talks about that, right? Then no one talks about yeah. the deficit. Yeah, two really big questions. I'm not sure we have a new monetary policy. I think the Fed had um, uh, gone a little too far in its rate increases. I think the president hectoring them doesn't help matters at all. I think the Fed is in a fine-tuning mode. I'm, I'm more worried, subject maybe for another time, that the Fed is not clear enough with the public about where True North lies for its balance sheet or its policy, I think the communication is just very poor. So I, I would give the Fed pretty poor marks at the moment. On the deficit, we're running a trillion-dollar budget deficit in essentially a good time. We're at or above our potential growth rate. That strikes me as odd. More to the point, we have massive accrued liabilities in our entitlement program. So we really are on a fiscally unsustainable path. Politicians say, well, look at the 10-year interest rate. It's under 2%. So what's the problem? There will be a problem one day. Unfortunately, our political system can't really cope with this outside of a crisis. The major fiscal adjustments we've had have been in manufactured or real crises. So I think of the Greenspan Commission in the early 80s. We're about to have another manufactured crisis because the Medicare trust funds are going to run out of money. So I, I think it's a huge problem, and no one is talking about it. And that's bipartisan. No one on either side is talking about it. Yeah, I'll, I'll add to that. So when I was in graduate school, oh, so long ago, 
uh, we read a book called the, the Social Security Crisis, right? And that was that was what uh, fifty uh, forty two years ago. Um, this has been coming for a long time, and we all know there really there is no magic bullet. I mean, the, the answers are. Either you cut benefits, you increase taxes, or some combination of the two. And the longer we wait, the worse it's going to be when things really get tough, right? If you had made choices, modest choices earlier, then people have time to adjust their behavior. You only have 30 years to save a little bit more because you know that you can't count on quite as much in the way of, of uh, Social Security and so forth. But we don't want to do it. I think the answer to a lot of this is, is just politics, right? Neither side, I think both sides know what the right answers are. They may differ about the balance a little bit, but nobody wants to let the other side win by solving the problem. So right? so we just, we just don't do anything, and we have this sort of paralysis. I think the same thing is true about the budget deficit. Right? You either raise taxes or cut spending, um, but neither side wants to let the other side win, so we, uh, we go on and on and on. If, if another country was running these types of deficits, uh, we would probably think that this is definitely on an unsustainable path and there's going to be an imminent crisis and the currency will depreciate by so-and-so percent. And we've seen this many, many times in Argentina, Turkey, other emerging market economies. I mean, our, our um, luck or uh, our our benefit is that we actually own the reserve currency in the world, right? So the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency of the world. We run deficits, we finance them by issuing treasuries, and the world gobbles it up. And at very, very low rates, they are basically lending us uh, free cash. We pay our debt in our own currency. Correct. That we print. Yeah. Right. So as long as that continues, uh, there doesn't seem to be a problem. But they will. I mean, if you if you do continue this for you cannot continue this forever and ever and given as as glenn mentioned that we have this uh, unsustainable debt path and obviously at some point there has to be some correction i, I guess the markets do believe that we will uh, eventually wake up to the point where politicians will 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 fix this so there are adults in the room uh, but if that doesn't occur then i think we are we are probably going to crash hard, and we might even lose the reserve currency status, which would be sort of the big tail event that we probably don't expect it will happen, but it's possible that it could. Okay. Last question. Meryl. So I'm a CPA, and I'm also a lawyer. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I deal with taxes all the time, but I also deal with the elderly. And my estimation of my clients is that they're, they don't recognize that they're going to get old. They think they're going to be healthy forever. They've saved nothing, and they don't think things are going to cost a lot. And so when you take that and look at the budget of so much in entitlements, and then you look at, well, how many people are actually paying income taxes, yeah, we got to cut spending, but we have to raise taxes, but I don't know on whom, because we can't cut the benefits for the old people. And we can't really squeeze that much more out of the 50% that are paying taxes because it's generally the middle class because low end don't, in my, what I see, low end aren't paying taxes and the high end have all the 
wisdom of the lawyers that bring it down. So it's the middle class keeps getting hit more and more, and they end up keeping their elderly in their home and ruining their lives and their economics paying for it. And I, I don't know how to fix it. I actually think Social Security is fixable. It just requires political courage. And there are a couple of fixes that would go a long way. One would be to take up retirement ages because the ability of most Americans, you know, we already discussed the service sector is the dominant thing, not manufacturing or heavily physical work. So that's part one. Part two would be something more akin to what economists would call progressive indexation of benefits. So currently, you know, everybody gets their benefit growth at the same rate of, of real wages. That could be slower for more affluent people. Or an even more sensible system might be to raise the minimum benefit, but then flatten it so that it's much less generous for middle and upper income seniors. We're going to have to make these choices because when you said we can't cut old people's benefits, the law is that we will. So in 2034, the Secretary of the Treasury, whoever he or she happens to be then, is going to have to start cutting Social Security benefits unless we do something. And that may sound like it's a long way away, and I suppose it is, but it strikes me as one we ought to think about. Well, thank you all for the panel, and thank you all for your attention. We've covered a lot of ground. So what's a thing and what isn't? Or in these cases, maybe what's a good thing and what's a bad thing? From a purely macroeconomic standpoint, growing income inequality at the top isn't really a thing. It's the bottom that's the real issue. People not having a productive skill set that allows them to share in the fruits of our economy is a bad thing. Technological disruption and changing economic forces are hollowing out the middle. Trade wars and immigration limits aren't going to solve this problem and are net drags on the economy. They are decidedly not good things. Don't get me wrong, losing your job hurts and the playing field needs to be fair. China has been a bad actor, but the solution involves investment in human capital that will help people compete, not putting up barriers to trade or mobility. Rising healthcare costs are most certainly a thing. Our employer-provided healthcare system is a historical artifact of a bygone era, hurts labor market mobility, and has shaped the healthcare system in odd ways. It is especially a thing for lower income groups, where it is taking up a larger and larger share of their total compensation. And from an international perspective, the results of our system, well, just hasn't been very great. Politicians need to talk more about creative solutions here. More generally, the economic anxiety of the electorate is real. People are concerned about their long-run future. We need to invest in our people to bridge the income inequality gap and improve the future of our children, especially for those at the bottom of the income distribution. And while interest rates are low and financing the debt is not an issue now, those IOUs will come due. We are mortgaging our future while limiting our ability to use fiscal and monetary policy to help us cope with the recession when it comes, and it will come. That is most certainly going to be a thing. What do you think? Check us out online and share your thoughts at business.ucf.edu slash podcast. You can also find extended interviews with our guests and notes from the show. Special thanks to my producer, Josh Miranda and the whole team at the Office of Outreach and Engagement here at the UCF College of Business. And thank you for listening. Until next time, charge on.